You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. David, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and let our listeners know what we're talking about today. I am David Wynandy, and I teach at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids. I do a lot of training on communication topics and speaking myself and one-on-one coaching as well. All right, David, so when you're undercover, when you're in an audience, all right, <laughs> what drives you batty about speakers? What do you say, I can't believe that this guy is in this position, he's on the stage and he's doing this. What is the this that I'm talking about? Ooh, well, there are various thises, I guess, to various degrees. Well, first of all, somebody who is dishonest or unethical or lying, and I know that, but other people don't know that. Or I think to myself, you're being a little manipulative. Even your logic it makes sense, but you're preying on a potentially vulnerable audience. That drives me crazy. Are they manipulative because you know something in their past? Or are you saying that even when they're up there and you don't know them, you can still see they're being manipulative? Well, both, I suppose. Usually, I think people are manipulative when I do know that they're just trying to achieve their goal. They're just trying to persuade people for their benefit as opposed to the audience's benefit or society's benefit. And they're they're relatively self-serving. And there are certain situations where I think, you know what, I happen to know that you are using a persuasive strategy that works really well, but it creates almost like a psychological vulnerability. And that's why it works well with this particular audience. And I personally wouldn't do that. And so that that will drive me crazy. I'm not buying that, David. I think that you... That I'm manipulative? I think you're manipulative. I would argue that anybody on stage is trying to manipulate something. You're trying to get your way. Now, if you're a good manipulator, you might say, I'm not manipulating. I'm doing what's good for the audience. But isn't it all good, especially for business talks? Isn't it usually always good for the speaker? It can't. Well, there are a lot of times when I'm advocating for a course of action where I would say, for me, I'm not going to gain anything out of it. Oh, I'm just advocating, for example, for a group of people. I'm trying to get you to donate for this cause, even though I won't receive any of the money for it. And I think it's when you intentionally know that you are trying to gain something from an audience for your benefit, your organization's benefit, and you're using a a strategy that we know is going to psychologically manipulate people. But just being able to achieve a goal that's not manipulative because we also have to be good consumers. We also have to be good Mm. audience members and we have to be able to say, well, wait a minute, I need to listen with critical thinking skills every time somebody presents to me. Otherwise we would be running out and we would be buying every product that we see (laughs) advertised on TV or whatever. I mean, we're not passive. There's a responsibility of the audience. All right, so how do I know when I'm being manipulated by someone on stage? What are they saying to me? 
Oh, it's not that easy. It depends. It, what it really does depend. It depends what, what the topic is. It's as individual as the topic itself and the way they develop content. Sometimes we just get a gut feeling. First of mm. all, it's not intellectual. It's not logical. It's more emotional. And you begin to say, wait a minute, you're preying on my emotional state right now. Or I don't trust you because I know in the past you have done things that have not indicated that I should trust you. Or you are just presenting information that although it statistics are statistics, but they're being manipulated or they're being shown in a way so that they will lead me to a certain conclusion. And when I start to feel that way, I start to say, I'm gonna do my own research. This is one person's perspective, but I'm gonna do my own research as well. And at least they have me starting thinking, so that's good. If someone sees me on stage, mm -hmm. or let's say they're listening to this, and they're saying, Mike's just a manipulator. I don't think I am, but what if someone thinks I am? What could I tell someone on stage? Is there a way to tell someone on stage that I'm not manipulating them? But that's a that's like right. Then when you have to announce that you're not manipulating somebody, okay, that's a huge then you're manipulating. Red flag, yes. All right, so how do I do it? Well, I think it goes back to credibility. I mean, I hate to go here, but oftentimes whether it's advertisers or whether it is politicians or other people who are persuading us, I, I think it's an issue of credibility. And even our good friend Aristotle, who wrote this thousands of years ago, and people are like, oh, it's so, you know, you're gonna get academic on us, you're gonna get professorial. No, I'm not. You write something today, and we'll see if in a few thousand years people are still quoting you. I think you're manipulating me now because you know I don't know Aristotle. That's like me saying the great Abe Lincoln said something. Well, I'm sure he did say something, but <laughs> you know what Aristotle said? That All right, what? Credibility is not simply competence. It's not simply, for example, that I see your little credentials or your certificates or all of your schooling mm. or whatever, or your years of experience, which oddly enough, when I'm introduced as a speaker, that's the first thing that people want to mention is why oh. I'm credible, why I have that information. Oh. Okay, competence right. is one aspect of credibility, but so are things such as extroversion, that you, for example, you seem like you're passionate. You seem like you're excited about your topic, but not in a scripty way. Not that you're scripted mm. and that you have been so planned out in what you what you say. Aristotle also said, and others as well, by the way, said that things like my perception, because credibility is audience-centered. I don't care how credible you say you are. It's what do mm. other people think. How much do I think that you have things such as trustworthiness is another aspect of credibility. So do I perceive that you would not lead me down the wrong path for your own gain? And sometimes we base that off of not fair physical cues. For example, you just have a trustworthy look. Or, I mean, mm. we know that people who speak, taller people get increased credibility simply because they grew or, well, it's not actually just height. It is the amount of space you take up. So that's why when I have smaller speakers, I say, it's important that you gesture perhaps a little bit more or move around just a little bit more. But things like composure is an aspect of credibility. My perception of your warmth and sincerity 
is an aspect of your credibility. I've worked with people before where I said, you're technically textbook perfect, but I sense little to no warmth out of you whatsoever. You're so stiff facially mm. or whatever. You just, you, you look like you're just gazing at me. I want to perceive that there's a warmth, that people would want to hear you. Those are the people who we want to interact with. Those are the people who we want to listen to. I mean, think about your friends who you'd say, ooh, she seems very, or he seems very cold. These are probably not the people who we want to listen to or that we want to take their advice. So it's, it's a whole gamut of things that can lend to that aspect of, will I believe you? I could be John the Baptist or someone up there, but if I'm not a good speaker, I might be not credible and not trustworthy to them, even though I am. It matters what the audience thinks. Most certainly, always. Credibility is an audience-focused concept. It's always the other person's perception of your credibility. That's what's important. While I'm teaching, if I think, well, I know this, I'm good, I'm good, I know all this, I've had so much schooling, I know all these theories. If my students say he's not credible at all, they're not going to listen. And so it's kind of useless. So a pharmacist listening mm -hmm. who has at least a few letters behind their name, and typically now everybody's got the different certificates for this or that, right, you know, right. you're saying that doesn't hold a whole lot of water for them. Well, it doesn't hurt. I wouldn't say it doesn't hold water. It holds a lot of water because like when the dentist leaves my little room or my eye doctor or whatever, I do go look at their little certificates on the wall and I say, oh, look at that. Look at that. But we also want to be perceived as if I'm being treated as an individual that I'm hmm. being treated as a Dave. I'm not just another person who has come in. I'm just hmm. not you doing, uh, like I'm another cog in the machine who could be replaced. I may be your customer. I may be your client, but I am still a Dave and that you care about me and that you will ask questions. You'll take time to listen to me. I don't want to feel as if what I hear come out of your mouth is so scripted that you could say it to anybody, mm. especially when we're dealing with health and health care. It's an intimate relationship. Automatically, it's an intimate relationship that I've come to you as my pharmacist and that you're supposed to care about me and, and I'm supposed to perceive that. How would you define public speaking? Is it, obviously it's not Margaret and I when I get home talking to her, right. is it, is it a customer? Is it a luncheon? Is it a Zoom call in front of a certain amount of people? How would you define public speaking as we talk today? Well, technically, it is one person to an audience, okay? And usually the audience has more than one person in it. If it's just one person, then it's usually interpersonal. You've never been to some of my functions. <laughs> well, and then I would say you're having a conversation, an interpersonal conversation. Right. You're not doing public speaking. But, All right. but if I get there or if the occasion is one where I say there is going to be this speaker and only two people show up, it is still public speaking. It's still, Or if 7,000 people show up, it is still public speaking. So it doesn't really matter 
too much. I don't focus so much on the numbers. For me, first of all, I tell all of my public speakers, don't even think of it as public speaking, because as soon as you think of it as public speaking, in most cases, it instills fear. Most of us get afraid if, well, not if we're the audience, but usually if we're the speaker, all of us get a sense of fear. And I'm like, no, 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 no. What you want to do is you want to create a conversation. You might be trying to create a conversation with one person. You might be trying to create a conversation with 500 people. But I want to individually get people in that audience to feel like they're listening to me speak individually. So I'm trying to create interpersonal bonds with them, whether it's through my content and making the content relevant for them, using examples that apply to them, whether it is because I am excited to be there speaking to them and I'm willing to show that kind of excitement, whether it is because of my eye contact and that I'm making direct eye contact with individuals, that that's a great way to um, to make sure that you're creating those bonds. Um, don't look at your note cards. Don't focus on your notes at all or pages of papers in front of you. Your notes know the presentation. There's no need for you to speak to the notes. There's no need to speak to a screen if you're using PowerPoint and keep turning your back and facing the screen. Most of us have computer monitors in front of us. And even if we don't, we should know what's coming up on the screen. So it's not something where we have to turn around. But what we want to do is create those relationships with individuals. All right. So 5,000 people are in the audience. Yeah. When you say a relationship, are you actually trying to make eye contact with someone and talking to them? Well, usually when it's 5,000, well, not usually, but oftentimes when it's 5,000 people, you could be speaking under stage lighting as well, which makes it even more right. difficult. You're in an auditorium. So what you do is you look to sections of the audience. You don't look simply at people who are looking at you, for example, and you start to say, oh my gosh, this, these three people in the front, they just have such great eye contact and they're so engaged. So then all of a sudden you start just hogging the conversation with them or you're looking only, I mean, traditionally we look down the middle and across the back more than to the sides, for example. But we want to look to sections of the audience and as you, whether it's a balcony or wherever it happens to be. And you, when you look at those sections, groups of people, weirdly, will feel like they're getting direct eye contact with you. Oh, the group does. As a group, they feel that. Yeah, and individuals within the group think, oh, he's looking at me. He's looking at me um, and and looking at this this section. Use examples that relate to specific groups within the audience. That's a way to create a bond. Make it memorable. I mean, there's a, no speech is good if it's interesting and I learn something, but then as soon as it's done, I know I don't remember a thing. Twelve years ago, mm -hmm. I had a chance to do some public speaking on a larger level than just Grand Rapids. And so I had gone to the college where you teach and I called up yes. there. I said, anybody that can help me there. And you came to light your claim to fame at the time besides, well, now I know it's just your good looks. Well, exactly. But at the time, your claim to fame was instructing 
Miss Michigan, who then became Miss America. Mm -hmm. So then you and I met up Mm -hmm. and I was going to prepare to give this speech to different parts of the country. And you offered out of the goodness of your heart to help me out. I'm not sure you gave me great advice though, because when you told me if you're nervous to picture yourself in your underwear, never, never, ever. I don't think that was good advice. I never, ever give that advice, but it's picturing the audience of their underwear, not yourself. That's where I went wrong. But that is like, no, no, no. And actually, I still do work a little bit with the pageant people. And I've had multiple, by the way, Miss Americas. But I also work with the Ms. Wheelchair America program, which is awesome because oftentimes you're dealing with with women, obviously, in this particular case, who sometimes have don't have a voice like the the rest of us do, uh, the norm of what people consider. For example, they're using voice-activated computers in order to speak, right. or they have cerebral palsy or whatever, so there's disfluency in their speech. Or you have people who are paralyzed very frequently, are paralyzed from the neck down, and so they can't gesture the same way. It doesn't matter. Or just being seated, we're just viewed differently. Everybody deserves the microphone at some point. Everybody has a message, and everybody has the right as a human being to be listened to. So I do work with those groups as well someone is disabled on stage sure, and they have no credibility in my mind. If I'm an audience member, I give them that credibility. You said that's my right. That's my right as an audience member. If someone doesn't have the stature, the height, the size, the dominating voice, all this kind of stuff, how do they gain that from me? Well, they can gain it. Well, it depends. I mean, a lot of times they actually, in this particular case, that community might have increased credibility depending upon the topic. If they're talking about what it's like to live, even with pharmacists, what it's like to go to a pharmacist and have complications because of a disability, they have increased credibility because of personal experience. Gotcha. They can use stories, they can, use, they can make us feel, anybody, can make us feel. I often say, you know what, use emotions as persuasion or as a retention tool as much as you use logic. If you think about what do we remember in life, we remember more of how we felt than what we thought. And when I when we talk about landmark times in our life or um, ceremonies or even movies we've seen, we remember how they made us feel. So I say, well, it's okay to make us feel that way. It's okay also not to assume that you don't have credibility as a speaker. You get up there and you own that stage, no matter if you're, in this particular case, rolling onto the stage or if you're walking to the stage, you come up with a sense of confidence and engage with the audience. And and you'll get that credibility. You'll get that credibility. And I think also because times are changing, um, I think that there isn't just the stereotype that certain types of people um, don't have credibility. So that's good as well. Is there any way to know when I'm speaking to a group that I'm gaining their credibility or losing it? 
we always want to be engaged with the audience. So if you're looking at the audience and for example, they look bored or they look disinterested, first of all, it doesn't mean that they are disinterested. Some people just have a bored look on their face. In in life, they have a bored look. So a lot of times I will try to imagine people are, are very engaged, but I want to be realistic about it. You do an audience analysis, not just before you speak, or after you speak, it's an evaluation then, but you do it while you speak and you say, are they with me right now? And if they're not with me, how am I gonna get them back? You know, Do I need to go back over a concept again and give an example because they didn't get it? Is it because I'm giving them too much too quickly? Am I not giving them enough information? Um, there's a whole variety of things that we need to do constantly to say, all right, are they engaged with me maybe they're i hate to say it but maybe they're not engaged and therefore you're not perceived as credible i suppose because you just you just seem or look like a dullard i mean you just seem dull and boring because it looks like you're not even engaged in your topic but we don't see ourselves Oftentimes we see, well, first of all, we see the reactions others give to us, um, but we we see ourselves kind of from the inside out. So I think, oh, no, right. my voice, my voice right. is very engaging. And, and then it's like, no, it's not. You've taken your your range, you've taken your pitches and you have flattened them oftentimes because of anxiety. You flatten them and you're not monotone by any means. I mean, truly, if somebody is monotone, one tone, that's crazy. But but you've taken that range and you've squished it down. And it's like, why we aren't usually that engaged with people who don't use the highs and the lows in our in their voices. Or do you vary your pitch? Or not your pitch, but your your pace rather. Do you vary that? Do you we need variety? But how do you know, David? When you're talking to a group, how do you know if you're gaining that or losing that? Well, first of all, ask yourself, would you be interested in you? That's like asking somebody on American Idol if they think they have a good voice or not. That's subjective. How do you know objectively if you're hitting the audience? Well, of course it's subjective, but so is every audience member is subjective as well. It's not an objective. I guess I would ask somebody in the audience who I trust for feedback. I would look at my evaluations and say, Honestly, are there things on there that I could change? I always tell people mm. to videotape themselves and to not just, which people hate. And you say, oh, no, we are very in tune with ourselves. No, we're not. We don't even want to watch right. our, a videotape of ourselves because all of a sudden it's like, oh, I do that. Oh, I move this way. Oh, oh, oh. I tell people you videotape yourself and you watch it three times three different ways at least, probably more than three times, you watch it with no sound and you say, would I be interested in this person non-verbally and what that person's doing? Do they show facial expressions? Do they have eye contact for you know, a period of time? They don't have fast eyes that are just darting all over and they're looking at the audience, but they're really just gazing over people in the audience and scanning. They're not really making eye contact with, in our culture, the United States, we mm. usually say three to five seconds of an un uninterrupted eye contact. Um, you know, and I would say, okay, does this person gesture? And do they have variety in their gestures that are natural? The same types of gestures maybe popped up just a little bit, 
that you would have if you're in a conversation. Okay, you watch it that way. Then I say, watch it with only the sound. Okay, so you're really just listening. You're not really watching and turn away from it and say, would you be interested in that person vocally? Do they sound excited about their story? And then watch it with both. You know what I often say is, and it doesn't have to be that we have to always be a cheerleader, but I often say that when I go to an athletic event, even I've gone to, to with friends to yeah. root on their team or whatever, right. and I have no vested interests whatsoever, usually in sports, much less in a, a certain team. And I think, why is it that all of a sudden I am that guy who's now cheering for this team that I didn't even care about and I don't know anybody on it. You know what? Passion mm. breeds passion. If you want other people to be passionate, you have to be passionate. And passion does not mean you have to be a cheerleader. Passion is conviction. Do you have a sense of conviction about your topic? And I think to myself, you know what? Um, there are, well, oftentimes preachers or other people who I listen to where I think, it is so still in the audience. It is so quiet right now, but it's not quiet because people are disinterested. It's quiet because people are listening and you could literally hear a pin drop in that audience because they're right with you. But you're not a loudspeaker, but I can feel your sense of conviction. Is that one of the clues of listening to the audience? And if they're quiet, unless they've fallen asleep, but you think that you've, you've maybe captured them? Well, yeah, and I think there are just some common sense things. I would say to myself, all right, well, what bores you as an audience member? Somebody speaking, you know, in many cases, I'm asked to do four-hour trainings. I would never do a four-hour training straight through without a break unless, for example, I had activities planned, activities that are meaningful as a speaker. We don't just do activities or pit people in groups so that they can play. It has to be relatable. If you are giving people information they can use, people are generally going to be pretty engaged. Um, and, you know, it is trickier if, for example, for about the past oh, year and a half or whatever, I've been doing most of my trainings or presenting through Zoom. And I think, all right, so is that the same? I'm speaking to an entire audience right. and I oftentimes don't see any of them. them, you know, but we still have to teach people to look into the camera. Okay. That, that just because you don't see people's eyes, it doesn't mean that you look at the little squares on the, I mean, you look there occasionally, yeah. but you don't look at that in the screen. You look at the green light or you look at the camera because that's going to feel like the most direct eye contact. We know with Zoom, and there really is very little research that's out yet about this, but um, but with Zoom, if we say that we want eye contact when we're in person, when we're face-to-face, -face, yeah. about maybe 60% of the time with audiences, we want that to be about 70 to 80% during a zoom presentation and realizing that people do get zoom fatigue and that that they've been doing it all day and that we can only listen so long so we break it up and we put it into sound bites if we have to it's not okay to just think well this audience automatically is going to want to or need to hear what i say I think every time I speak, I don't care how many times I've talked about the exact same topic, I say to myself, Dave, you have to get excited about this. 
and you have to make it relevant to them. And you show it in your facial expressions, even when there are times when I'm thinking, I don't even see these people. I still want to get excited about it and make it apply to them. You mentioned audience size, and you're doing a lot of the things the same for audiences, whether it's three people or 5,000, you still want to interest them and make them feel connected and so on. Right. Is somebody who talks on Zoom with a dozen people there or then talks to 50 people at a luncheon, are they prepared for a thousand people? Oh, it's always different. It seems that when you're bigger, I don't know if it's human nature. It seems like I've seen people when it's like a bigger audience, they actually almost naturally get bigger. It's not quite conversational anymore. What what happens in those cases? Well, and it's wise to do that. If you are, for example, the larger the audience, we often say the more we animate our facial expressions. Now, this can be, mm. I mean, it's dictated by, there have been times where I have spoke to like, let's say 800 or 1,000 people, but oftentimes at that size, there are video screens off to the side. So they can still see me pretty directly, even if they're mm. way in the back. But yeah. we do that to an extent. There's like, almost like a curvilinear relationship where we say, okay, increase it, increase it, increase those facial expressions based on the size of the audience, and then don't just keep increasing them to the point where it's clown-like. But, but a lot of times, I mean, we, we level off at some point, but it's a lot like stage makeup. Stage makeup is not yeah. the same as normal makeup so that we can see features more distinctly. And so I might emphasize certain things in my voice a little bit more if I'm in a larger group. You know, the bigger thing that I find when people speak to larger groups, and by the way, larger groups aren't always the more difficult groups to speak to. There are many people I work with who say, I would rather speak to, and I feel more comfortable speaking to a group of 200 than I do to 10 people in a boardroom. That that makes mm. me uncomfortable because every single time somebody looks away, I'm distracted every time. You know, I just feel right. uncomfortable in that sense. And it can't depend on what your background is. Like sometimes I'll say to people, does this size audience that is very large, trouble you and they're like no because i took dance lessons when i was little and we had to do dance recitals mm. so i'm used to being up on a stage and being in front of people um so it's not necessarily just the size of the audience but it's your perception but if if the audience is larger it's easier for them to tune out so i always want to make mm. sure you're not going to tune out if at all possible because again i'm going to make the the information as relevant to you as possible, where you can't wait to hear the next thing I have to say. And I'm going to try to connect with you. I'm going to try to create this interpersonal relationship with you where you feel a sense of commitment to to me and to the topic as well. You know, so much of it is mental. It really is. It's like, you know, I can get myself all worked up if I say, oh, there's all these people. There's all these people. There's all these people. We beg people all day to listen to us. We get mad when our kids mm. won't listen. We get mad when coworkers won't listen, when, when nobody listens. And now we say, these people will listen. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh no, don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. If you start to hyper-focus on the fact that they're watching me, they're watching everything I do, they're, they're critical potentially of me, if somebody starts to hyper-focus on that, that's when I usually say, okay, get more engaged with your content. Think mm. more, even more about the content and the audience as opposed to yourself. 
you're just the little microphone. You're just the conduit. And it starts in the beginning of the presentation. It starts in the introduction. A lot of times people will set themselves up for failure in the very beginning of the speech or presentation. Well, first of all, I don't even call them speeches. I just say, you're just talking to people. It seems these days, you know, and I think I'm a, I think, David, that I'm sort of a a victim of COVID because even Mm. I, as, oh, a small business owner, and I've done some speaking, whether it's at a a group function or something in town or something like that. Right now I'm saying like, I don't need to learn about public speaking, but I think it's because, or I don't need to think anymore about public speaking, but I think some of that's because we haven't seen it in the last year and a half with COVID. It just doesn't seem like it's part of my, on my radar anymore, but there's still going to be times where I have to get up in front of a, a wedding reception or some, you know, some pharmacy weekend coming up or, or something. And, uh, boy, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind for me right now. It, well, that, that is, there's a lot of things that are out of sight, out of mind for us that are normal <laughs> right now, but it's coming back into normal. And actually what I'm finding is that, that people now on the other end, training and um, just presentations that I do, they are craving live human contact mm. and that they want live speakers, whether it is for a community group or a church group. I mean, you as pharmacists, you are a part of our community and it's a vital, I'm a part of an educational community that goes out into the community. And and Mm. so are you as a pharmacist. I mean, that I want to feel that bond. I don't want to feel like you're just a pharmacist. I want to listen to presentations that you would do at my church, for example or at any other type of community service organization or at a school. And I want to begin to feel like, oh, you're Mike, the pharmacist. Because if you're Mike, the pharmacist to me, I probably am gonna feel a sense of affiliation and want to go to you with the issues mm. with with my business, quite frankly, because I think, okay, you care. If you're willing to go out into the community and speak to us, it's not just about, I'm not just a business for you. You care about me and you care about my health. And that's important. So I find that right now, at least for me, people are craving live speaking as opposed to um, through, again, mediated technology, whether it's Zoom or some other webinar. They're craving it live now? Oh, yes. And even when when I'm doing customer service workshops right now or working with people in customer service, what I'm finding a lot is that people who answer the phones right now are finding that they cannot get people off of the phones. Oh, that's interesting. But it's not because they have more questions, but it's because the sense of isolation that we have experienced. And and just because you haven't experienced as much isolation because you've been in a profession where you still had to go to work or you have people living with you, there are a lot of people who have not had that and they feel more isolated. So then even when they get you on the phone, and a lot yeah. of times it's not you, it's your frontline person on the phone, they have they want to elongate the conversation because it's like, oh, oh wait, I haven't had a conversation like this with the person, even though it's not in person, it feels more personal because it's one-on-one. 
And so what we're finding in customer services, I have people who say to me, how do I do this? How do I manage these phone calls with people who want to talk longer and da 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 da? So actually I'm finding now that people are craving and wanting live presentations. All right, David. So I started by saying that this executive from this big organization got up on stage and just mm -hmm. was terrible. Again, I'm not putting myself up there. She was just terrible. Poor darling. If they stink up there, I'm not saying poor darling. I'm saying you should have learned this by now. Well, I'm not saying that to the person. Well, potentially, potentially just because you're skilled in your your expertise area doesn't mean that you're skilled in presenting. I would say that that's oftentimes the time when I would choose somebody else to make the presentation. I would say, you're not an expert in everything and you have to trust a team member, for example. Or not hiring him or her knowing that part of their job is probably gonna be getting up on stage once in a while. I've worked with managers, for example, who have been really good at motivating their team really they have really high numbers you know crassly they just they brought in a lot of money but you're right they weren't good at making presentations at the at the director level to i've worked with ceos i've worked with vice presidents and it's not as if we say okay get out you're you are you just were not a born speaker well first of all there's no such thing as a born speaker um instead what we say is all right let's have you work with somebody or work with people to make you better at this skill. And let's get the skill development up to the point probably where you're gonna even feel more comfortable and confident making the presentation. And a lot of times it's somebody external, actually from the organization I find that is probably best at being able to do that because they have an objectivity and they also don't have a vested, like I'm hired a lot of times to work with people through an, a human resource department. And all of a sudden that is my job. My job is to be both reinforcing because a lot of times people do great things that they don't know they do. And I say, oh no, you need to keep doing that. But it's also to say, no, we need to change this behavior because it's not great. Or you're so stiff. You're so professional that you look like a textbook. You look like your PowerPoint slides. You look so institutional that I'm not engaged. I want some personality to come across while you're speaking. If I own a company and mm -hmm. I know that someone's a terrible speaker, instead of me going and telling this person that and beating around the bush saying, you're not going to get up on stage. I'm going to hire Dave and let Dave say that to him. Right. It's kind of like, you know, your mom or your dad telling you certain things versus even a teacher at school right. saying it. It's just, we, we're just are receptive differently. And some people also just have an expertise. Like when I work with a person, I don't say you use the Dave formula, you become Dave. And this is what's made me successful as a speaker. No. It's me being able to say, all right, for your context and your situation and your content and you, how can we make this so that you still are Mike speaking? You're not Dave speaking, you're Mike speaking and you're still uniquely Mike. And how can I work with you to, to feel confident? Because a lot of times that's what it is. People don't feel confident enough to be themselves. And it doesn't mean that you show every aspect of yourself. It doesn't mean that you are 
you know, so often we hear, oh, be real, be whatever. You still have your company manners on. Okay. You still already have your company manners on and you're authentic, but authentic can still be bad. If you're authentically a bad person, Ted Bundy, but Ted Bundy was authentically a mass murderer. It does not mean him. He was good. You can be an authentic asshole. You certainly can. And it's like, and sometimes we see that, like, if we talk about group communication and staff communication, I oftentimes will hear people say, oh, Dave, when I'm asked to come in and work on a staff or work with a staff and and help with their skill development, it's like, oh, well, that's that's Mike. Oh, that's just mm-hmm. Mike. That's just the way he is. Oh, we've just learned that. Da, 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 da. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, no, that doesn't give him the right to be offensive. That doesn't give him the right to be sharp like that just because that's who he is. Right. It's like, no, no. And that's hurting your business. And perhaps it's not a great fit. It also just hurts the overall environment for most organizations or teams I've been a part of. It's like that person is a grump. And sometimes I just need to have a come to Jesus meeting with them and say, you know, and sometimes it's just an unawareness. I mean, it really is. They're just poor self monitors. And I just need to say, you know what, this is the way you're being perceived, but that truly is not their heart. But unfortunately, I can't see your heart. I see the behaviors. In the day and age of the cancel culture, (laughs) where you say one wrong word and basically you're fired from an organization, or at least that's potentially, that's what people are thinking, whether that's true or not. If I'm a CEO or if I'm in charge of something, I'm not going to let anybody get up on stage in my organization. Like I talked about these people that I thought were terrible speakers at the wholesaler convention. I'm not going to let them get up on stage with a few words outline. I'm going to make them read verbatim when they're talking to a group. Am I wrong? Well, I guess it's dependent upon the situation, but I would say for me to use a manuscript and to do manuscript speaking, first of all, you're a control freak. If you can't even trust a person to be able to go off script a little bit then I hope you're following them around with every single customer. And I hope that you're following them around all day to make sure of that. You have to have some trust. David, devil's advocate, though, they're on stage. They got video cameras on them. And all of a sudden they say something. Now my job's on the line. Well, of course it is. But you're talking about the exception. You are not talking about the norm. And you're talking, you're truly talking about outliers. And if somebody is going to say something offensive. First of all, the first thing I would do afterwards is I would point it out to them. And depending upon what the situation is, I probably would be doing some damage control right afterwards. But I I literally can think of almost zero situations in a business situation where I've seen that happen. People are usually so nervous and they're so focused on their content that they are not thinking about, well, I think I'll make this off-color joke, unless they're silly and still thinking that humor is the best way to start speech. And Yeah, this isn't a best man speech kind of thing. Yes. And even, okay, let's, let's go to that for just a second. The only speech that should be memorized where you're not allowed to take notes up or anything like that is a toast for example, and if you're doing a toast, which is oftentimes, but not always the best man or best woman or whatever, now it's everybody gets to do a toast at a wedding. 
Um, first of all, you don't take out little sheets of paper, even if it's not. It's supposed to feel and be so sincere that you wouldn't need notes. It's about the other person or it's about the situation. It is not about you. It is not about your relationship with that person, um, but it should feel sincere and warm and, and it should actually be a memorized kind of thing. And you should not have been drinking beforehand. Liquid courage does not help people. David, I love you and I love your professional advice, but I'm going to go against you on this one. Okay. All right. Number one. Oh, poor Mike's a bad speaker. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. You've been drinking like a crazy man. Right now? Before your kids get married and then you get up to give the toast and you think you did a good job and all you did was give yourself anesthesia so you don't remember it. Listen, mm -hmm. I think that best man speeches should either be written or illegal. Let me tell you why. Well, if you write it, you still can memorize it. Bear with me here. <laughs> Memorizing stuff does not work because you get up there and you forget like the third word and then you're just screwed. Have you ever memorized something? Um, I worked at Cedar Point. Are you kidding me? I had to memorize everything. Are you really saying memorize a toast? I would not take notes up. I would, I would at the very least have memorized the bullet points that I want to cover. Oh. And I would practice enough so that it's still, I'm not saying memorize so it doesn't, it sounds like the Pledge of Allegiance or the Our Father. Oh, you're saying memorize your three or four points. Or whatever it is you have to say, of course. And to, and to still let it be conversational. But if you know me so well that I'm, I'm choosing you to be my best man and you have to pull out notes to talk about me, I have a better man that needs to be doing this. I think that best man speeches should be illegal. Here's why. Yeah, they're, they're well, go ahead. What, they are illegal, you're saying? Well, no, that's probably something that I'm going to agree with you because a lot of times they're, they, yeah, they don't, they don't serve the purpose. Here's what you got with the best man speeches. You've got somebody who's drunk sometimes yes they've been on that little party bus beforehand well any of my family oh that's true yes somebody who's drunk or any teacher friends of mine evil go ahead <laughs> <laughs> you got someone who's drunk mm -hmm. no they're you're not right. used to a microphone on average, they're not used to a microphone. Right. They're not used to being in front of people. That's number three. This one you're going to say, well, boy, you, you got some issues, Mike, but I'm just going to say it here, okay? They're best friends with this guy, the groom, and arguably the bride has taken the best friend <laughs> away from the best man. In other words, the best man spends less time with the groom because of the bride. Wow. So he's a little bit pissed off that they haven't gone hunting as much. They're not fishing as much. They're not going to the bar as much. They should have got married. So the best man, subconsciously, he's a little bit pissed off. All right. And you don't piss off somebody who has a lot of private information about someone else. He knows all the stories about this guy and he can do a lot of damage. So now you've got those four things. You've got the most important day of the groom and the bride's life. Most certainly. You put those five things together and best man speeches should be done away with. Well, 
and you should be institutionalized. But that's a whole nother <laughs> issue. But but I do I do agree with you to some point. This is not a venue where most people feel comfortable. When you asked about the large yeah. audience, for example, it's kind of comparable to that. You know, you're at a reception yeah. where there's a lot of people. And like you said, you step up to the microphone and it's kind of like the perspective of the room is different. We're used to seeing the room from our little seats in the audience. Everything is different and it makes us nervous. And sometimes when people are nervous, they will their inside voice goes outside and they start talking aloud things that they normally would just be saying to themselves, whether it's reassuring things, you got this, or whether it is crazy ideas, or they think all of a sudden they have to become a comedian because they're in front of this audience. I do agree with you that that sometimes it can go very bad or it can go very long, which is very bad. And that it's it's sometimes out of fear. That's why I tell out people fear. That whenever, makes sense. whenever you are speaking to everything I say makes sense. <laughs> Whenever you're speaking to a large group, you should get there ahead of time and you should get the perspective of the room. When I, I, I think about a time when I had to, well, I didn't have to, I chose to speak for a breakfast, which is hard because it was a breakfast with about 800 people sponsored by Kellogg, I might add. Oh, of um, course. And, I, and so they had all their breakfast foods there, even though it wasn't Kellogg people there but they sponsored it so i was gonna have to be speaking over people eating yes it was about 800 people i got there the night before and it was me and the setup crew and i was i hopped up on the stage and i was like okay i need to look at this because i've never been to this ballroom right and i need to look at this ballroom and and get to the point where i've gone through mentally at least part of my presentation mm. so it's not new. Mm -hmm. It's not shocking to me when I hop up here tomorrow yes. that I think, okay, how am I going to engage with those people in the back? What are the sight lines like? Will somebody be introducing me? Will I be the sixth person in stage? Will I have a podium? Will I be mic'd? How will I be mic'd? Will I have a lavalier mic? And so I can move. Will I be stationary? When I feel like I have control mm. because I have knowledge, yeah. my, my anxiety goes down. If I have control over my voice, if I have control over my body and my hands aren't shaking, I have control over my technology. That's when most of us start to say, all right, I, I do. I've got this. I've got this. And so even during a toast, even though this is not the point here, but during a toast, when all of a sudden I, I stand up and again, it's a very similar situation. People are waiting to be to be served. They've been drinking. Yeah. Um, and I stand up and it's jarring to me. Yeah. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. I didn't, I've never spoke like right. this. It, it almost makes us feel catatonic. Like I just want to get over it. I think with this fun of talking about the best man, I think we hit the nail on the head of about the size where I can picture a pharmacist, especially with COVID, you know, relax now. And I think a lot of times it's going to be that luncheon where you're either maybe right. giving a send off to one of your coworkers or you're accepting a new position in that spot. And I'm picturing, you know, 30, 40 people, something like that. What are some tips to do that? We talked about getting to know the room, you know, sure. What else can our listeners gain to give them confidence in that situation? Uh, several things. First of all, I think that you as pharmacists should not be waiting to be asked hmm. to make these presentations. I think that you should be active 
and that you should be out saying, how can we be out as ambassadors hmm. in our community speaking about whatever the issues happen to be? Um, so that would be my first thing. Uh, the, I, hmm, there are so many things to be a good speaker. First of all, r- realize why you're there. Hmm. How long do you have? What time period do you have and why are you there? And what do you need to be a good speaker? Do you need a glass of water? Do you, I need a podium and I don't even stand at one, but I just psychologically need it there. You need one, even though you're not behind it. It's almost like your wingman sort of. Well, and I, I have my notes usually sitting mm, on it gotcha. and stuff. And I, and I use it to store things yeah. and stuff. But I, I bring one with me in the trunk of my car just in case they don't have one when I get there. I'm like, you do? Mm-hmm. Or I'll, I'll take a music stand or something like that so that I, I say, you know what? Dave is always going to, I know what I need and I'm not going to be a victim mm. of a catastrophe that I've created because it's like, no, 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 no. I would say, why is the audience there? You're not giving a canned speech. You're, you're making it as specific for this group, whether it's a group based on demographics, they're older, they all have a similar type of concern. Mm. And that's why you're there speaking as a pharmacist or whatever, make it as relevant and interactive, mentally interactive as possible, get off to a, a good start. A good start is have an attention getter. Don't apologize from the very beginning. Sometimes I, I often will hear people start with an apology. Very common. And they want to lower people's expectations. Yep. It's almost like I can succeed if you think I'm going to be, if I'm going to get a C. And then if I get a B, I'll look like a savior. But if you think I'm going to be an A, uh, no. So they'll start off by saying things like, you know, I'm really nervous or I don't do this very often or I know you've, oh my goodness, you've been sitting here for hours. The last thing you probably want to do is listen to another speaker or, um, oh, I have to follow Mike and that's never easy to do. Especially if he was drunk. Well, especially. A lot of times people will start by apologizing for their voice or, you know, oh, bear with me. I've been having problems with my voice all day. That is so common. Practically everyone I hear is an excuse. I don't need to hear about all your medical issues. And if it is so horrible, stay home. Right. Don't speak. Why are, why are you doing that? Don't start with an apology. First of all, preview. Give me a preview of what is the, the overall goal of the speech or presentation and kind of what are, how are you going to attack this topic? Well, give me a little schemata in my head, a little roadmap in my head that I can follow that you're going to fill in. Even if your speech is like real short, you can still give that schematic, right? Of course, because you know what? Not everybody is an oral learner or an auditory learner, you know, that we need to see things. And it doesn't mean that, for example, I need a visual aid. I only use visual aids when I need them. I don't use PowerPoint very often. I only use it when I need it. But it doesn't mean that I can't create a visual aid in the person's mind. Use language that appeals to all of our senses. We're very sight oriented. Don't just tell me what I would see. Tell me what I would feel. Tell me what I would hear if it's if, if possible. People retain more information that way. They retain when you make it relevant to them. They retain when you repeat information, obviously. But, but get me off to a good start. You know, sometimes I will see people who will ask questions in the beginning, mm. and then they're not prepared for the answers. 
So for example, rhetorical questions are always okay, as long as they're not endless, but um, questions where they say, by a show of hands, how many of you, blah, 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 blah. And then nobody will raise their hand. And they don't even acknowledge the fact that no one just raised their hand or that it's half and half or that everybody raised their hand. And you should be able to respond differently depending upon what what people just did. But but people aren't always that flexible. You know, I think that we do, we want to avoid phrases in the beginning of today I want to talk to you about. It is a filler phrase. It has told me nothing. It's not a sexy attention getter, first of all. And it's, you told me nothing today. David, you are the sexy attention getter. Well, I know that, but not everybody's me, Mike. When you end a speech, if you want to do a great speech, end with a clincher statement. End with, well, first of all, a summary, of course, but a statement that tells the audience without a doubt that you are finished. It's almost like the um, exclamation point at the end. It's very awkward if you finished and I don't know you're done. We And then there's that awkward pause and then somebody will say, well, that's it. And that's now your clincher. That is not a great clincher. Um, don't rely on thank you. If, unless you've been invited. If you've been invited, thank you by protocol is, is okay. If you have not been invited and you're just speaking, thank you is not a replacement or question and answer sessions. Um, sometimes people will say, oh, does anybody have any questions? Because they didn't plan enough. They didn't have enough content. So they're like, oh, does anybody have any questions? And then it becomes awkward if people don't have questions. What if you want to go into a question answer, but you do have a talk first? Is there a good closer and then a good opener for the questions again without just like moseying into the Q&A? Well, I would preview it in the beginning and say that we will have a question and answer session at the end. And I am going to reserve five minutes. Well, it depends on the length of your presentation, obviously, five minutes, 10 minutes or whatever. And then at the end, I would say, as promised, for those of you who have had questions and I haven't been able to take them throughout, um, let's let's address some of those questions right now. And that would be after you close the speech, sort of? After your clincher line? Yes. And you may need another at the end, or usually there'll be somebody else who will say, you know, we're we're out of time right now or whatever, and they'll close you for you at that yeah. point. But if it's if it's awkward and nobody has a question, I would have two or three questions that I would have prepared as the speaker to say something like, you know, for example, I see that we don't have any yet, mm-hmm. but some of you may be wondering about this and have a common question related to your topic. The the odder thing sometimes is when people will ask a question, I find that speakers don't know where to look. Do you look at the person who asked you the question and make eye contact with that person? Or do you look at where do you look? And it's kind of like if any time you've been interviewed for a job and it's a group interview, yeah, a, a variety of people at a table, for example, and you, I always nonverbally eye contact start with the person who asked me the question. I expand out to the rest of the audience and make sure that I'm having eye contact with the entire audience because it's a symbolic question that anybody okay, could have yeah. answered. And then I end with that person visually with my eye contact with that person who 
asked me the question because ultimately I want to make sure that they're satisfied in terms of the, the response or the answer. But I also need to make sure that they don't monopolize, that they don't come back and say, oh, I have another question, I have another question. I'll let them do maybe one more and then I see that there are other people and I say, we'll come back to you or I'll have time to speak to you afterwards, but I wanna get some of these other questions as well. And then hopefully we'll have time to come back to yours. Here's another one. They get up to ask a question, but it's really their statement time. Oh, yes. Yes. They're going to tell you how to run the world. And then it might be posed as a question. Do you ever tell people like, what's your damn point? No, I don't do that. Well, first of all, the person who invited you to speak and who did an introduction should be monitoring for that. And so that's why we a lot of times will have people who monitor the questions and answers. Oh, monitor it before the question even comes in. Yeah. Or just say, you know what? We have some questions, blah, 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 blah. Or let's do it this way and we're going to structure it. And they call on the people or whatever, because sometimes they're even familiar with people who will go on and on. But but I would say at that point, that is a very interesting point that you made. Thank you so much. And then go on. What if you can't shut them up? You just try to get in there somehow? Well, sometimes they're just going to speak. And at some point, if it goes on and on and on, then I would just be pretty assertive and direct and say, um, I love what you've said. And I'm, I would love to talk to you about this afterwards. But we do have some other people with questions. And we only have a few minutes left. So I want to get to some of those. That makes sense. And you know what? And sometimes you just do. You just have to cut people off at that point. You know, a few other quick tips I would have is one with PowerPoint. Um, don't please do not just simply read slides to anyone. They can read them. Um, don't put too much in a slide. Practice with your slides in a large room or the space where you're going to be doing them. Don't just look at your slides on your computer because as they, the, the font size and the colors and the differentiation is very different when it's projected into a screen in a real room where you thought something was so bright and vibrant and it's not. Um, and, and the other thing is I tell people, where do you stand? If, you give, if you're given a choice and from the speaker's perspective, should the PowerPoint slides be to my left or should they be to my right? From the speaker's perspective, not from the audience's perspective. And I usually will say in the United States that I want the speaker to be on the right. If we're talking about staging, the speakers on the right PowerPoint slides or the screen are on the left. The reason I do that is because of the way we read. We read going that way from, um, and so, you know, whatever is on from the speaker's perspective, again, whatever's on the right is going to get the most attention. So I want it to always be speaker first, visual aid second. And so if you have a choice, I say, you know, choose your side in terms of even where you're speaking. The other thing I tell people a lot of times is we need to figure out how to relax. We, I mean, your heart is going to be racing. Your respiration is going to be changing. It, you know, it, it happens literally to almost 100% of speakers, whether they're terrified yeah. or whether they're just excited to speak. And it's like, you know, and sometimes I tell people, first of all, choose the right topic and you probably won't be as nervous. I tell people stop calling it a speech because the word speech 
uh, puts a lot of us in a fearful state. Um, sometimes I tell people, stop thinking you have to be perfect. You don't. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be perfect. That's the, you know, it's okay. Just be you. Just be you. I also tell people, you know, use rational emotive therapy. Um, basically, what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that can happen? And most of us have these horrible thoughts in our heads of, oh my gosh, I'm going to be laughed at. I'm going to be laughed at. Even if you were laughed at, I hate to say it, but probably by the end of the day, nobody's going to remember that you were laughed at. I mean, we don't even remember major news. That's like when you told me to picture myself in my underwear. I never, ever would do that, nor would I tell people to look over people's heads. Is that bad? It's horrible. Why, why would you? We're not speaking to a back wall. We're speaking to individuals. So speak to an individual. And it's less scary if you look at individuals. Most of us say, I can speak to Mike one-on-one. That's no big deal. I'm intimidating. I hope not. Well, when you or others get in an audience, that becomes intimidating. It feels like it's them against me. Well, not if you break it back down and you say, it's just Mike. It's just Dave. You're just speaking to us. It's okay. I would also say practice, for goodness sakes. Some people deserve to be nervous because they're winging it. Some people don't have a healthy respect of the microphone, and they should. Well, and the audience's time, and they just think, oh, I'm best when I just wing it. Uh, 99.9% of the time, the people who I've seen who say that are not good at winging it. It's just rationalization for being lazy. That's almost as prevalent as the excuses. It's almost as prevalent as, yeah, I'm going to wing it. Or they'll say, um, I don't need a microphone. I just like right. to stand up here. It's almost like that overconfidence kind of thing. Well, and if you do have a strong voice, maybe you don't need a microphone. And maybe that does take a barrier between, you know, it becomes a barrier between you and the audience. But you better be sure and you better have tested ahead of time that in a full room, whatever that means, um, acoustically, everybody's going to be able to hear you in all spots. What if you get up and you know you're going to have that? shaky voice you know the first words out of your mouth are gonna be that is there a good like take a breath right then or is there a way like so your first word doesn't come out cracking it's proactive it's practicing ahead of time first of all it is breathing breathing you know i always tell people the first four steps of your speech is you walk confidently up to the front you pause and take a breath you engage the audience and you provide eye contact before you've said anything. You're creating a rapport, a positive rapport with the audience. Okay, so you take a breath because a lot of times people, they get that weak voice because they're taking itty bitty little shallow oh, breaths. They're, just, gotcha. they're not taking a deep breath. But the other things that you need to do is take care of your voice. You need to hydrate those vocal folds um, and and do it with a non-caffeinated beverage. And sometimes people are like, oh, well, I had a bunch of tea right beforehand, this nice tea. Well, did the tea have caffeine in it, first of all? It's like, that's going to be drying on the vocal folds. Avoid mint. Uh, that dehydrates us. I mean, there's a variety of things. I usually tell people also to be aware of their voice. If you have a deep voice, that's a magnificent speaking voice. But it's not magnificent if you're not projecting it. It turns into mumbling. And so we want to make sure that we project it and use the articulators and watch your diction and articulation. So you're not saying, well, typical Midwest things besides the nasality. Yeah. And if that's the case, I usually will say, you know, 
do vocal exercises. I do vocal exercises every time before I speak. I will do the vocal exercises. You do? Yes, I do. What are they? Well, it depends what it, what it is. I will just do vocal slides or sometimes I will hum because the humming nature, if I have a kazoo, that's ideal as well. But the humming nature will actually allow me to feel the parts of my face where I want resonance to be. And I become more aware of that. Hmm. It just warms up. The, what athlete would use muscles without a warm up? It's not done. But we expect these vocal folds, which are mainly or vocal cords, whatever, uh, mainly muscle. I mean, there's cartilage and some other things, but we expect them to work when we've been screaming the day before or whispering, that's horrible. Or we've been clearing our throat, doing the <clears throat> thing where you're just bashing yeah. them together. I mean, we don't take care of our voice. And then we wonder, why did it? Why was it horrible? Or I've had people who have very high voices. I've worked with newscasters who, unfortunately, male newscasters who had high voices. And again, life isn't fair. And if you have a high voice, you get a childlike um, demeanor that's associated with a Mickey Minnie Mouse kind of quality yeah. and it decreases credibility. So we say, okay, I'm going to teach you to use a different part of your natural range. That's what we're going to do. If you want to save your voice and to be vocally best, do some vocal exercises. And then the best way to save your voice is shut up. Okay. Just shut up or speak in your natural register and that will get you warmed up. I'm kind of getting fired up now because like I say, I COVID made me think like these things didn't exist anymore, but it brings me quickly back to some service lunches I've talked to and of things course. like that. You kind of get that fire going inside of you again. I'm looking forward to it. When someone will say like, do you have a visual or what will you need for visuals? And mm -hmm. I hate visuals. I don't usually have something I'm trying to show in that. Does it look bad if you say, ah, I don't have a visual. Does it make you look bad? Like you don't know what the hell is going on? It depends. I, I get this all the time as well. What technology will you need? Da, 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 and all this. And, and in most cases, now this is not the case during Zoom presentations, but in most cases I say, you know what? I'm not going to use PowerPoint. And it kind of scares the people who are hiring me or asking me to come in. But that isn't what Dave wants to do and how I'm different is I will have usually a packet of information for them or handouts or whatever. And I go very old school and I say, you know what? I want this to be an interaction where we're talking to each other. You're not talking to a PowerPoint. And weirdly, that has become my big selling point or one of them. And that people are like, oh my gosh, he doesn't, he doesn't make us listen to all these PowerPoints. And we've had all these other presentations where right. we're just... It's almost like you're getting Zoom fatigue without Zoom. You're just, it's this PowerPoint fatigue where you're just looking at a screen and it's fatiguing and all this. And I'm like, nope, I'm just going to, I'm going to talk to you. And I'm going to do some exercises perhaps that are relevant that everybody can relate to. Um, yeah. And I'll have, again, a packet of information because I want there to be retention of information. Or if I do PowerPoint, it will be simple PowerPoint. I follow the six by six rule, no more than six lines, no more than six words across, all that stuff. But I don't, I, I, I find that I get asked back time and time again, not because I have credentials, not because I've done these things, I've coached these people, not because I have technology, it's because I'm that folksy guy who is actually breaking the stereotype of, 
I don't want them when they hear I'm a professor, or that's one of the things I do, that it's going to be like school. Because most of us don't think, oh, school, that was so engaging. Oh, I loved lectures. Oh, oh. But you know what? I, I want them to feel like, again, you're having a conversation with me. And so all these concepts that we talk about, you should be able to use these interpersonally as well. You should be passionate about your story if there's one person. You should be a passionate listener. You should be, I mean, it's all these things that I'm saying in terms of public speaking. I want to do that when it's one-on-one, when I'm in a group. When you say conversational, Mm -hmm. but you're still in front of 50 people. It's a heightened conversational style. It's obviously not conversational because they're not heckling back. Do you mean by that like you're- They're non-verbaling back. That's what I'm getting at. There is some conversation, even though it's not verbal, right? Yeah. And sometimes they will, like, they will give me looks or they'll be nodding their head or they'll do whatever. More women. I mean, quite frankly, demographically, the research tells us in the United States, at least, um, that women are more non-verbally expressive and such. Although some people will actually even do the back channeling thing, the mm -hmm, Mm mm-hmm, oh, right, that type of thing. And that's great. I, you know, they should still be having a conversation in their head. When I have a conversation with you, there's points where you're listening and quiet or points where I'm listening and quiet, but I'm still engaged. I got Now, you. granted, again, in public speaking, I probably expect your style to be a little popped up, just a little bit more exuberant than it would be one-on-one. But that makes sense. Like we talked, as the crowd gets bigger, you almost naturally, unless you're not able to receive stimulation, almost naturally you start doing things as a bigger crowd. When it's one-on-one, one-on-five, one-on-fifty, one-on-five-hundred, you've almost naturally probably have made things bigger. You know, I do. And sometimes I have to watch that because my gestures will get to be so big that I think, okay, I have to tone that down because I don't want them just to listen to the gestures. I want them to retain the information. But then there are other people who, when the crowd gets too large, the Mm. fear just makes them stiffen up. And that's why I say, no, we're going to go there ahead of time and you're going to walk through. Even without saying the words, you're going to say them in your head. And you're going to go through your introduction. You're going to go through the first few points and walk the stage, so to speak. As soon as I can get rid of the unknown, that makes me, again, feel like I have control and make me less nervous. The more I know about the audience. Well, you taught me, Dave, amongst other things, when I had to give my early speeches and mm-hmm. I was getting up there and reading off the cards and stuff. And you're like, no, nope, we're going to do it this way. And Trigger so Trigger words. Yeah. One of the big things, though, was that when I would go, and even this was even with a, a relatively smaller group, if I could, giving maybe a breakfast talk or something like that, I would always try to get there the night before or even a oh, yes. even an hour before, check it out. I'd walk up to the podium, look it over, mm-hmm. even if it was an hour before. Then I would go back out to my car or whatever, and then I would come back mm-hmm. in. But what you've done there is you've taken away the thousand thoughts of what is this place going to look like, and you can just remove that from your head and the day before is even better if you can sleep on it then take away the variables if you can it gets rid of the surprises yeah and generally in public speaking i don't want surprises i don't want hecklers for example hecklers anymore aren't by the way people usually 
like when I was growing up, when like in, at political rallies, for right. example, you would have people heckling or whatever, and now it's more controlled. But but a heckler can be anybody who takes attention away from you. So mm. if there's a person, for example, who who looks incredibly bored, right. they probably are become the epicenter of your being. Yeah. And and it's a passive heckling. But you still need to say, no, you don't know they're bored. Or just because they're bored at this moment doesn't mean you can't get them back. Or maybe they're bored because they're just a boring person. And you have no idea what's going on in their head. Or... Exactly. And nine times, nine times out of 10, at least I will find that people were not bored. Mm. But they're just they're just unaware or they're just more stoic. And they just don't express themselves non-verbally as much. And that's okay. That's all right. The cliche years ago was always start off with a joke. And then the cliche for the last 10 years was never start off with a joke. Don't leave that to chance. Can anybody right. start off with a joke anymore? It hasn't changed in terms of what I believe. I say the only time that you use humor is if it is a part of your personality. Of course, the humor has to be in good taste, as humor should be. Well, never mind then. Yeah, I know. But, you know, if you're starting something new... And you say, I'm not the kind of guy who tells jokes or whatever. This is not the time to start something new and risky uh, because jokes are risky. What if no one laughs? No, you know, whatever. But if it's if humor is a part, most of the humor that I use is in the stories I tell. And they're stories about me. And and I will often say, you know what? I'm not proud. I am not proud that I did this, but I want them to see that if I'm giving a bad example of something that somebody did in terms of communication, it's like, okay, this is something I did one time because guess what? We're emotional human beings who aren't always logical. Kind of a self-depreciating humor or a story of some sort. Yes, but that also has a moral to the story mm. and that it's not going to be so tearing me apart, that it's going to decrease my own credibility. I would never do that. Unless the speech is rags to riches or right, right. bad to good or something like that. But just a general story that takes you away. It's like the audience doesn't have to deal with that at that point. No, no. Or they don't need to think that's the guy you are and you're up here teaching us. If I heard a pharmacist, you know, it's not like, for example, that pharmacists don't have addictions or that pharmacists right. don't have whatever. They're human beings. But I probably don't want to hear that you have an active addiction at the right. time and you're still my <laughs> pharmacist or, yeah. or that there's like, well, aren't there governing bodies that should be doing something about this or whatever. Right. But But it does make you in some cases much more relatable. And much more human to me and say, oh, wow, it's not just you preaching at me. You would get some of the things or the struggles that I've had as well. You know, we talked about people getting up and almost subconsciously like attacking their own talk by saying I'm not prepared and things like that. Are there any other conscious or more likely subconscious things that a, a speaker is going to do that is like bombarding themselves from the start? You know, probably the classic one that most of us think of are technically called things like vocal interferences, but um, 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 but it's not just um, well, like, you know, any of those filler words that most of us, quite frankly, do not hear ourselves. We don't hear ourselves saying them. When I work with people who have a lot of vocal interferences, 
I will make them aware while they're doing it because that's the first stage. And it's a molding process. It's not that I just say, you say I'm a lot. Oh, I do. Okay, well, then I won't anymore. It's not that easy. It's a molding process, but we can do that. It's subconscious. Well, and that's the beauty of videotaping and the horror of videotaping is that you hear it. Ignorance is not good in this case because then people, and I think we've all been in this situation, they start to count your ums and they start to focus on the ums. We don't listen as well when there are vocal interferences. Dead air is a pause is better than filling it with um. Or now the new one is, and it's not even like, sometimes people get sing-songy voices as well, or they do the up speak and they start, but it's, it's when they start to do the right, right. They will say something right, right. And it's like, it's like this assumed agreement that we have. And, and I have some people who I listen to who will sometimes do right, right? They'll say something and then it's like, right? And I'm like, no, not right. What the hell are you writing about? No, I don't agree with you at all. Stop that. But that's almost become their um. And it's this trigger word. You probably see patterns through every four or five years of California drop off and the up speak and all these different things. The vocal fry. Yeah. You probably see, yeah, the vocal fry. You probably see a pattern of those every sure. half dozen years. Yeah. But that's, that's one thing that I would say, you ignorance is not bliss not knowing that you do these things doesn't make it okay and there are things we can do about them that we can mold that type of behavior and all of us have things that are sometimes called unconscious incompetencies things we're not aware of that we do that do not enhance our speech when you're talking about filming, we're not talking here about you're giving a public speech and you're filming it and then learning from that. You could do that. But nowadays with your phone, you, you prop it up against your printer. You stand up mm -hmm. in your office. You pretend like there's an audience there. You give your speech and then you do mm -hmm. the same th things you did. You turn the sound off. Mm -hmm. You look at your arms flailing around or not. You listen to it. Then you put it together. That's just from your phone. You can do that in front of nobody, right? Well, every time before I start a Zoom presentation, I will set up a fake Zoom meeting and I will practice with a fake Zoom meeting, looking at myself saying, wait a minute, you're getting a horrible glare in your glasses right now, or the whatever's happening, or you're, you don't sound right. How mm -hmm. can you say that again this way? And sometimes I will actually hit record on my fake Zoom meeting where I'm the only one there. But it, it's exactly the same thing. You're right. There's so much technology available to us now that that recording ourselves is easy. And especially when you don't think it's needed, when it's a, you know, a minute introduction or an acceptance thing or something like that. It's like, turn your camera on if you're going to, if you're not going to be doing it the next day. Would you want to hear you? That's the key. Nah. <laughs> Everyone wants to hear you. What things do you ever say? Can't believe I was put in this position. Or does that person know this is affecting me? Right. Or is everything perfect when you're there? No, hardly perfect, I would say. But but it's okay because it's human and things are going to happen. I guess with Zoom, there's the, or whatever technology we're using, webcasting, whatever. Yeah. There's there's always the technology issues that can mm. happen. So, but it's it's like, all right, can we fix them or can we not and go on? Or I always tell people if they're presenting live or if I'm presenting live, 
and I'm doing, or I should say face-to-face, and I'm doing PowerPoint, if their technology does not work wherever I happen to be, you should always be prepared to do the presentation with or without the PowerPoint presentation. And you, we don't spend 10 minutes, somebody's trying to fix it, they're calling IT, they're doing whatever. It's like, no, just go on without it. And by the way, while you're presenting, you don't say things like, uh, if you could have seen my slides, well, I can't. Okay, so shut up. I can't see your slides, so stop that. that. You know, two things I can think of off the top of my head that that bother me, I suppose, as a speaker. One is if, and there would be no reason for people to know this, but I have been made promises that are not fulfilled, but I don't know it till I hit the stage. Hmm. That either I've been promised certain technology or I've been promised a certain seating arrangement or been promised sound equipment or whatever that is not there and I didn't, I, there would be no reason that I would know it. Or one time I was getting ready for a presentation, talking to the person who had booked me, get, put out my little handouts, did everything. The person introduced me and it was not the topic that oh. I was prepared for. And the person watched me give out these handouts that had the topic on it. We had talked and, and I s- said, is that the oh is that the topic I'm speaking on? I thought I was speaking about this and I didn't know what else to say. And she she just looked and said, "Yes, that's yes, I'm correct. That's the topic." And so I thought to myself, "All right, collect up these handouts and you better go, little boy, because you have 2 hours now that you're speaking and you don't have any notes, you don't have anything, you know, and I spoke on that topic before, but that doesn't matter because when, when all of a sudden you're hit with that, it's like all of a sudden I couldn't even remember my name momentarily. And I'm like, all right. Um, and I, I thought, okay, just, just calm down for a second and you know, okay, well then let's talk about this topic. And I started to preview it. And then I did put them in some groups and I would have anyhow and done this exercise, but that gave me a few minutes to jot down a few things. And I thought, all right, can I speak about this for two hours? And yeah, I can, you know, or one time I was speaking at uh, the arena in our town um, and uh, was speaking to a group of middle schoolers, which are not my easiest um, group to speak to. And all of a sudden, the hockey team, um, the Griffins actually, uh, came out to practice while I was speaking. And and I thought, okay. And it was partially I was doing this for the Griffins. So I was like, okay. And they just thought it was kind of funny, but but they didn't leave. And then I'm trying to still speak to the arena with these Griffins who are like, slapping this puck around and I can also hear the coach screaming through his headset, get these people off the ice and everything. And I'm like, stay concentrated, stay concentrated. So that, that was kind of a, but you know what? It's just life and things go wrong. Now, if it's the other perspective, what bugs me about an audience are when audience members, and this bugs me in general about people. So it's not just that um, when they start pulling out their phones and they start mm. texting, they start taking calls and, and take getting up with the call. And I understand emergencies. I understand that totally. What I don't 
understand even interpersonally is when somebody will pick up their phone while I'm talking to them. It's like, no, even to text or something. Yes. It's like, we don't No, You don't, there's no reason to do that. When you've picked up a phone and all of a sudden it's in between the two of us. And I'm just like, Oh, it's really quick. It's really quick. I mean, we see people do this all the time at dinner, you know, we'll go to a restaurant, you see right. people texting it. What you've now done is you've stuck another person in between the two of us. For sure. And for me, just as a human being and what I teach people, right. that's it's very rude and disconfirming. And so I make sure that when I'm in an audience, my phone is not with me. Unless, again, it, I mean, there have been situations where somebody is in surgery, <laughs> quite frankly, and yeah. I, I just wanted to know. But sometimes I will even, if it's appropriate, I will go up to the speaker and say, I just want you to know I'm having my phone sit here. But yeah. it's because I, I, it won't be a call, but I just need to know that. But that's happened once in my life, you know, where, where somebody has done that. So, but it's just the norm seems to be it's okay. It's okay to pick up your phone or start texting or start doing whatever. And I'm like, really? No, 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 no. Now, when I'm, and I'm usually training about how to be a good interpersonal communicator. And it's like, well, that's not it. And I get it when I see people's phone go off and they're like, they get this horrified look yeah. and it's like, they're looking for it and they can't turn it off. And I'm like, it's okay. Or I'm like, let me answer or, you know, I'll just work it in some way or whatever. And I'm like, it's fine. Just turn it off. It's fine. Because they look at me like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, no big deal. It's more the person who just constantly is texting throughout. And I'm like, um, boy, I wouldn't want you as a romantic partner. I wouldn't want you as a friend if you did that to me. And as an employee, the only time I really see it in a customer service orientation is I don't see people usually on the floor, if you will, if they're out helping me. Yeah. But I will see them sometimes at the counter I go to or by their register or whatever, they'll have their phone there and they will be looking at it when like the, they're not responding to the text, but yeah. they're looking at the text while they're helping me while they're just saying, would you like to, t do you have any questions that for the pharmacists? And I'm like, we both know that right now you're looking at that. And it's right. like, it's, it's okay, but it's kind of like when you're texting, when you have your phone with you, when you drive, it's tempting to want to look at the texts that are coming through, especially when right. they come through your car and it says like on the radio, like, yeah. okay, there you've got a text, you know, and I just stick it in my briefcase in the back seat where I can't reach it. And it's right. like, no, there's no temptation there. And so it's like, it shouldn't even, it shouldn't even be out, but we're humans and we make mistakes and whatever life goes on. If you've got a group of people on your staff and you need one of them to, give a little talk or a little introduction or something like that. Is there any way to tell who might have the skill of this? Let's say you got 20 people on your staff and you need one of them. It's not going to be you for some reason. You'd one of them to stand up and give a introduction for somebody. Are there any skills that maybe you haven't seen them speak in front of people, but there's maybe a carryover and you think that person might be good for this? Are there any hints of that that you would know? Or could someone just be great in a group and you think they're good, but they would just suck in front of a dozen people for... Oh, that can always happen. You don't really know. That that can always happen. There's some people who, who can't drive on a highway, but they can drive well on a side street. But 
But I guess I would look to, first of all, who interpersonally do you want to listen to? Who is engaging on your staff, whether it's at a meeting or just when they're talking? And there's mm. almost like a sparkle that, that comes across. I also would, quite frankly, it depends on the situation, of course. But I, I just went to a graduation where they at, it was a small it was a small private school, very specialized, and they asked the students, do any of you want to be the speaker? Like, do any of you want to speak? And four of them volunteered. I would not force, even if I thought, well, mm. number five, you would be great. You would have been great. You would have been great. If somebody tells me they don't want to, I'm not going to probably put them in a situation it, um, it, I would ask if people are motivated to do it. I think it's also to some extent topic driven. I would say, you know, who here is best to speak about it or do, who connects best with there's some people who connect best with high school students. There are some people who connect best with um, professionals or other demographics right. or seniors or whatever. And it's like, I, I guess I would say who who feels because I might feel very comfortable speaking to one demographic about a topic, but not another one. They just intimidate me. I would respect that and not just tell them, oh, you'll be fine. Oh, you'll be fine. Oh, you'll be fine. It's like, stop saying that because I don't feel fine. They might have speaking skills, but what you were saying the whole time here is they've got to believe in their subject and believe in this and that. And so you could take a good speaker, right. give him a terrible topic. He might get by, but he might not convince many people that his heart's in it. Right. Or just have the depth of knowledge. If you had to fire somebody up about public speaking, and let's say it wasn't a prerequisite they had to take in their class or something like that. But we that are now graduated want to take some adult right. course or something like that on public speaking. Yeah. What is the highest calling of a public speaker that you would go? Would you just tell somebody, hey, you better learn how to public speak in case you have to give a best man speech. Is that the highest calling or do you put a higher calling on public speaking? And if it is, how high does that go? to the people that you're teaching? Well, I think, first of all, you can use these skills everywhere, whether, again, it's one-on-one -on -one or it's not. I think also it's symbolic for some people. They think, I can't do this. I hear that all the time. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. And I'm like, well, let's see. And I can find positive mm. things that everybody does. And I'm like, you don't even see this. You don't see that you inherently are so sincere and non-threatening and trustworthy. And it's like, okay, we're right. going to use that. I don't want you to change it because this is a gift that you have. We all have gifts and this is your gift or one of your gifts. And we're going to augment it mm. with these other things. But so often the self-talk has been so destructive of, no, I'm not good. Or I had this one bad incident and da, 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 da. And it just sticks with me. And so I'm just... Mm. I've reinforced with myself that I'm horrible at this. And I think the bigger yeah. issue for me is because I'm yeah. not the guy who always loved doing this by any means. I could do it, but I I hated it, as a matter of fact. And and when I started to say, wait, I can do this, and I'm pretty good at this. This is a skill I have. It taught me that this is probably symbolic for life. There's other things I can do too, where I had put myself into a psychic prison and told myself, nope, nope, I can't do this. I can't do that. And so every single person that I've worked with who's gotten 
better. And they always do. They're always like, I'm like, wait a minute, you can do this. You're not going to do it like other people. You're going to do it like you. They also start doing other things better too, because it teaches them on a grander level. It's like, well, wait, if I can do this, I can probably do this, this, and this. And it boosts self-confidence beyond just the speaking thing, their identity changes. When you think about the people that talk about fears in life, I can see what you're saying, that this is the symbolic walking across the coals or something, where once they've done this, it's symbolic on their bigger life of, I can do this. And you know what? Maybe it's also just, you know, as, as at least as I get older, I put life back in perspective. And even the worst case scenario of what can happen, if I put it in perspective and I say, okay, look at the people who are at the children's hospital right now who are facing real issues, or or I, I'm old, I've had real issues happen to me as well. And it's like, you know what? I'll survive. It will all be okay. It really will. All right, David, I appreciate your time. Uh, very interesting. Thank you. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.